Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the Ask Noah, Wisconsin, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done, and we take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines, they're open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 855-450-NOAH, that's 1-855-450-6624, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalat. I am your host. I'm delighted to be here as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, as always, Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. I hear you've been having a good time up there. Dude, it has been such a fantastic week. I cannot even begin to describe it. I'll also just take a, a quick moment to say thank you to our production team. You know, when I'm outside of the studio, when I'm working and doing my day job, which has to take the priority, these guys run around like chickens with their heads cut off to get all of the things up and running for me. So I just walk in like gangbusters and, and everything goes off without a hitch. And I, it's a huge thanks to all of those, to, to all the production people. You don't hear about them. You don't see them, but they do a ton of work and they make the show fundamentally possible. Um, also joining us, our lead installer, Kenny Schmidt. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, our, our, our support technician from Speed Technologies, Peter Dennert. Welcome in, sir. Hey. Oops. All right. So, um, yeah, let's jump into feedback. Feedback number one, hard drive question comes in from Frizzo. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. Hi, Noah and Steve. I recently bought a four terabyte Seagate external USB hard drive. The Seagate expansion, and then gives the ID, I use it to expand the storage of my Odroid XU4 Nextcloud system. I notice that the hard drive keeps spinning, even when it hasn't been in use for a while. I'd like to have it stop, I'd like to stop it from spinning when it hasn't been used for a few hours to save on some power and extend the life of the hard disk. When trying to figure out how to do that, I notice something weird. HD Param. The HDPARAM com command spits out a bunch of random data for this model, the serial number, etc., and the smart control command fails, saying that SCSI is not supported. It turns out that accessing hard drive over USB is very different from accessing it over PCIe. After some more digging, I found that it might be possible that UAS is blocking me from using smart. And then he links to a form on askubuntu.com that, that dives into this, though disabling it might give worse performance. Regarding this, I have a few questions. What is SCSI and IDE? Might be an interesting answer in a third storage episode. What does USB give? Why does USB give me this trouble? And what would you do in this situation? Thanks for all your time and what you do. So, Steve, I'm going to ask you, what is the difference between SCSI and IDE? Well, I mean, largely this is irrelevant these days because nobody uses either one of these um, in their in their actual form. So SCSI for SCSI was used back in the day for um, faster access than IDE. Both of these use parallel send, which means that what they do is they gather up their information and they send them down the wire all at once. Whereas today we have uh, serial attached SCSI or SAS, and we've got SATA, uh, which is the, the serial attached, um, whatever, serial ATA. And what they do is they send information as soon as they have it, but information goes one, one byte after the other. So in parallel, you can think of all of these like an eight lane highway, and they hold the traffic until such a time as they, they're ready to send, whether it's an amount of time or an amount of data, and then they send it all at once and all eight lanes go. Whereas with the serial technology, essentially the bytes just keep flowing as soon as they're there. And we found that that approach actually is faster. In terms of SCSI and IDE, they use different command sets. And so, I mean, I'm not going to get really nerdy about this, but it has to do with the way that the hardware talks to the underlying storage device. And so um, while we still use the SCSI command set, we don't use SCSI in the way that it was initially intended, and we don't use IDE at all. Um, IDE was also called Parallel, parallel ATA or PATA, and uh, except in the very oldest of things, we don't use that at all because it's terribly slow. Let me ask you this. You and I were kind of talking a little bit before the show. Neither of us uh, 
were aware that maybe this is the wrong way to phrase this, but I, I wasn't aware that USB prohibited the ability to use smart control. And you said you thought, I think I've seen that before. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So I did some digging before the show about this and I discovered that um, the the Linux kernel actually has a block on devices coming from Seagate specifically. Um, and it's been in the kernel since 4.14. And what they basically do is they don't, when they say if your vendor is such and such a device, they, they turn off the serial ATA pass-through. So the serial ATA pass-through happens um, when in UAS mode. So that that's a... Um, USB as storage or some, something like that. I forget what the acronym stands for exactly. Um, but it's a way that the Linux kernel identifies hard drives that are plugged in over USB. And there you can disable this mode or you can leave it enabled. But the long and short of it is with the Seagate drives that have a, a specific um, identifier on them, the Linux kernel since 4.14 has been looking through this, looking for this specifically and disabling the the ATA pass through. So there are other other hard drives that may not have this trouble. Like I have a Western Digital, it it doesn't have this trouble, which is why I was like, hmm, that's a this is an interesting one. So I ended up finding a a long thread on the Smartmons tools, uh, let's say ticketing system, like where they where they collect bugs and stuff like that, and mm-hmm. they basically closed it as can't fix because this is something that's blocked in the kernel. Gotcha. You know I you know when he said. It's very accessing a hard drive over USB is very different from PCIe. That is absolutely a hundred percent true. Smart technology isn't what I would have jumped to as the huge detractor. To me, the huge detractor is you're funneling all that data over the USB bus, right? So you've drastically reduced uh, your uh, performance. Um, by going over USB. And so this this is why I try to, if I have an external drive, if I'm going to do any sort of large data transfer, I, I want it connected over eSATA. Yeah, I, I still use um, serial ATA or I some, like the eSATA is good. If I have to have a removable drive, for example, the, um, the cold storage that I have. So I mm-hmm. have USB disks that I plug them in only when they're backing up so that I can't, I don't risk having like some sort of electrical short on them. And sure. so for that, it doesn't really matter because I just plug them in. They're on for 20 hours or however long it takes to do the backup. Then you unmount them, you unplug them, and you go about your business. You know, another option might be they have like Icy Doc makes like a, it's a like a five and a quarter inch uh, insert that goes into your desktop PC and then you're connected over a, a normal SATA interface, but you get the opportunity to hot swap, swap those drives out. So you can pull the drive out, put a new drive in. And so if you want the flexibility or ability to swap drives or do something like that, but you also want the performance, there's, there's ways to get around that too. Of course, that, that presupposes, I guess, that you have a desktop. So maybe if you're doing something off a laptop. You know, different story. But um, anyway, that's what we would do. Uh, so maybe check out a different uh, storage drive if uh, if those functions are important to you. Our second email comes in from Baku. Baku writes in and says, "Hi there, Noah and Steve. Thanks for the great part two on storage. Really useful information it was. Thanks also to Linux Ninja for sharing his knowledge. I look forward to similar topics based on the miniseries in the future. In episode two seventy seven. Steven mentioned his trouble for mounting SMB shares in Dolphin. KDE has native support for SMB shares, so this was a bit odd. Anyway, I'd highly encourage him to install the KeoFuse and Caden, Caden, uh, Caden Twork file sharing packages. Check if this solves the issue. After installing these packages, a reboot is highly recommended if possible. I have a question for you guys. Does using a router firmware like OpenWRT or DDWRT, Fresh Tomato, etc., have any real-world performance benefits over the stock firmware? And are these firmware more secure than the stock ones? Keep up the great work. Baku. So I want to address the first part of his question first. Um, yes, KDE has native support for Samba shares, but the issue that we were running into and the issue that I still have is that it doesn't expose that Samba share as a browsable local storage path. It, you know, so you can't, there are certain applications that if you need to browse from the file directory tree, you can't arrive at that Samba share through uh, that tree. There are certain applications that just won't work over the Samba share. So I'll give your, your Keofuse and, and Kdent work file sharing packages try, perhaps that fixes it. 
Um, but just a little bit of clarification there. As for the router firmware, this is an interesting question, Steve. What are your thoughts? Is there a benefit to these open source firmwares? Uh, well, of course they are because they're open source. But in terms of performance benefit, um, I'm not convinced that you're going to get a ton of performance uh, because that's not usually the the reason that you're doing these things. Most of the time, the uh, the little device is either going to do what you need it to do or it's not, and it's bottlenecked by the CPU anyways. You if you're swapping out your firmware, it's usually because you're looking for missing features or controls mm. or even updates. There, there are so many devices that, you know, the maybe you get, a, if you're lucky, you get one update in the three to five years that it's quote unquote supported. Um, whereas the open source stuff, people are, are more likely to keep that up to date because they've got a vested interest in, you know, not throwing out good hardware. Yeah, they, not only do you get the, the update, but you're really on to something when you talk about leveraging your existing hardware. There is a there is a all the incentive in the world for the manufacturer to say, hey, we supported that thing for two years, five years, whatever. Time to move on. Kenny, you this is a this is, you know, direct. We've experienced this point blank like you bought a Nexus 6P. And the thing ran to end of life. It was a piece of junk, was not working, slow as heck, all the things. And then you flash lineage on it. Things like a brand new phone. And oh I, yeah, it was I, ridiculous. I, I mean, it it went from completely unusable to just your average budget everyday smartphone overnight. I, I used it for a few weeks after yeah. that. You know, and so that's I think where the real benefit. The other part that I would dovetail onto that is consistency, right? So if you are using the stock firmware and you're on a Linksys router, you're at the mercy of whatever Linksys wants the UI to look like and whatever features they want to support. And if the next release, they decide to do things differently, well, that's just what you get. Same with D-Link. Same with uh, Netgear. If you move over to something like OpenWRT or DDWRT, now you have the opportunity to use that Linksys hardware. You can go buy yourself a ProtectLe device and, 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 or you can go buy uh, an, an alternative competitor. Whatever hardware platform you want to use, you can deliver the same uh, user interface and, and, and the same consistency there. Yeah, and just a little bit of a clarification I had noticed reading through the show notes here. I think uh, that's actually supposed to be Kden Network file sharing, not KDNT work. Uh, just a clarification. There. Yeah, that's the second time it, as yeah. I said something. I know else. you had actually ah. mentioned it earlier today that you did the same thing, so I uh, figured I'd catch that. So that's our. That, those are the reasons, Baku, that you might consider an open source firmware and. Um, yeah, check it out. If you do wind up on DWRT or OpenWRT, I I would uh, I would encourage you to write back in. Let us know how it goes. Our third email comes in from Corey. Corey writes in uh, and says, "Hi Noah, I love the show and I've been listening since episode one. I have a show request about the biggest and most important source project of all time, besides the Linux kernel, obviously, and that is drumroll, please." Bitcoin. I know you were big into it back in the day, but I haven't heard you mention much of it lately. I'd love to hear your thoughts on where it is now and where you think it's going to be. Maybe put some FUD to rest and the effects of climate uh, and what it was designed for, things like that. People don't realize that the energy industry would benefit from Bitcoin miners as they are innovating new ways to use wasted energy, and 70-plus percent of miners are now using green energy. Anyway, thanks for the great shows. You do a huge service to the open source community. Cheers, Corey. So I guess the way I would answer that is this. So I have I I've not fallen out of cryptocurrency. I have played a little bit with some alternative currencies, but I've mostly stayed with Bitcoin. But the 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 interest of cryptocurrency in general to me is the concept of a decentralized currency. Things only have value because we decide they have value. If tomorrow we all decided that pocket lint was going to have value and we were going to uh, exchange pocket lint, um, we could do that and pocket lint would have value. If you think about the intrinsic value of a dollar, it's very little. It's not a particularly great piece of paper. There isn't a lot of free space to write notes or do anything on. Um, and it doesn't really hold its shape very well. It kind of crumples up all the time. So it, it has very little intrinsic value. If the world came to an end tomorrow, you'd be better off with a sack of potatoes than a whole bunch of cash even, um, and a shotgun. <laughs> but when it comes to cryptocurrency, we have, again, no intrinsic value. It's just mathematical calculations. But there's value because we all agree that it has value. And because it isn't controlled by any government, because it can't be controlled by 
artificial inflation, what you see is a lot of people flock to it for, for, for those reasons. And if you start to look at it from a privacy perspective, what you find is you will look at court cases. Most of the time, unless you're using some sort of laundering service, they can, they can go back and track where all of these exchanges happen because they all happen in the open. Now, I've had some interesting conversations with banks in the past few months. And they're very excited about uh, the blockchain technology that came from Bitcoin. Um, and they're interested in the identity management side of it. So I think some things that you saw come out of cryptocurrency, I think certain aspects uh, industries will latch on to and say, yeah, we're going to take that. But I think large, largely governments want to remain in control of currency and people want to trust in currency that is run by governments and i think that that puts bitcoin at a huge disadvantage um i think that puts cryptocurrency at a huge disadvantage but i will i i I still have a miner. I still think it's fun. I was never into it for investing. If you invest in Bitcoin, I think that's foolish. Um, it is a, it's a very volatile thing, but it's a fun thing. And if you get into it from the tech side and you're interested in, hey, I want to learn about mining and I want to understand how the blockchain technology works and I want to understand how a purely digital currency could work, that's where I think the value of Bitcoin is. And that's where I think the fun is. And that's, that's what I would recommend. Um, that's what I would recommend you engage with. Our fourth email comes in from Charlie, and he's responding to speeding up Internet access. Uh, and he writes in and says, Good day. A gent wrote in on episode 278 about offline map sharing. Did you know that you can self-host OpenStreetMaps? And he links to a form uh, of OpenStreetMaps. Uh, has this gent and his wife checked out of geocaching? And then he links to a Reddit uh, post. I'm unsure. If you could get an open source geocaching app offline to load the map data using OSM, then offload loading the geocache locations, it might be possible. Also check out Ozmand, Android Offline Street Map. Uh, this page mentions a lot of OSM with Android, and he links to the wiki for open street maps. Could the internet speed could internet be sped up at a home lab with a local 2.5 gig or 10 gig setup using SquidCache set up on an MVME and local stream server and a Linux LAN Linux repo? Uploading machines via LAN NAS server on 2.5 gigabit connections with a 10 gig, which would update once a day slowly overnight, 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. This could be a workaround for slow internet connections in the home, but it's deployed fast in the background, very tech magic. And then he gives some links. Um, so, Steve, your thoughts on on Squid and and trying to use that to speed up a home internet connection if you had a limited connection to the world? I definitely did this back when I was on dial-up and I was on, I think I was on 3 meg down and, I don't know, something obscene like 128 up. Um, and it definitely can help you. But the speed of your connection to your squid server is not really going to make a huge amount of difference because you're still going to have to wait for all of the stuff coming in off the internet. Unless your squid server is caching literally the entire page and you're just trying to make offline copies of the internet, but then you're talking about exceeding the capacity of an NVNE, like you're talking about gigs and gigs and gigs of storage and uh, hosting all of the linked artifacts and stuff like that. So you you would see some benefit from setting up Squid to handle a bunch of the static content. Uh, you'd also see some benefit from having a DNS cache so that you're not going out to the internet all the time. I'm unconvinced for specifically for Squid and web surfing, whether you would actually see any benefit from upgrading your internal LAN network um, as a general rule. There were some uh, additional questions in here about uh, like a stream, like a Steam cache server, and in which case, mm. like you know, if you're doing Steam or Origin or UPlay or all of those other kinds of things, you absolutely would see an increase of of um, updates and stuff like that. If you're say downloading them overnight and then using the the uh, proxy to send to multiple clients over ten gig or two and a half gig, but even that, I found that one gig was sufficient because. I wasn't hosting a LAN party. It was like me and two other computers. And, you know, uh, it was way faster than than uh, having my silly, slow DSL internet. So uh, if you want to care and feed for these different um, caches, 
you absolutely could see a benefit here. It's you have to balance your time versus, you know, just leaving your computer on overnight to let it update. Yeah, absolutely. Our fifth email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes and says, recently you had a question about GPS tracking for pining hiking spots. I actually had good luck with a commercial solution from Garmin, the InReach Mini. I often like to hike and fish in the Rockies, and sometimes there aren't any people around. After sustaining a minor injury, I decided to get a multi-purpose satellite transmitter, and I have a plan that's $35 a month. The features I like about this model, first of all, it's a compact handheld device, 100% global satellite coverage. Anywhere there's clear sky, I have service. I can send a text, positioning data to family, either from this device or to a linked smartphone app through text over satellite will take longer to send. Families can respond back to your texts from a cell phone, and there's an emergency SOS button that you can use in the event of an emergency to get some assistance. For me, in the backcountry, sharing my location data is much more valuable than the privacy concerns. Additionally, you don't have to pre-plan a route of pins and exactly follow it. Other satellite communicators are considered, and then he links to a couple of them. So I've, I've looked, I know exactly what he's talking about with the Garmin series. They actually have have a whole bunch of them um, and they are really cool devices and you can get plans that limit how many texts you send and it's cheaper you can pay a little bit more money and get an unlimited amount of text messages so a very uh, a very cool uh, option our sixth email kind of ties into the same thing howdy no one steve i was listening to episode 278 and had wondered if there was a location tracking app using nextcloud well you're in luck because there is it's called PhoneTrack, and it's great. I've been using it with my family on a self-hosted Linode NextCloud, for instance, for over a year, and it's been working fantastic. I just wanted to share so that you could share it with the audience, and then it gives a link to the phone track for NextCloud, as well as the PhoneTrack Android app. Now, uh, and, and then you say, stay awesome, Aaron. The, uh, but I also wanted to bring in uh, Peter Dennert, who is, uh, who is live back at the studio in Grand Forks. Um, you had some thoughts on this as well. Yeah, because he was he was trying to like mark like locations and photos, um, hmm. and so if you like take a photo, a lot of times um, you can t you can embed the GPS information into the photo, and if you do that, then if you on Nextcloud, if you use the the Maps app, then you can view your photos and it'll show you on the map where they are. Very cool. Very cool. And have you used this? Is you have this set up on your NextCloud instance? Uh, I I don't, I don't have I, I didn't. But you've seen them. it. Yeah, I've seen it. Very cool. Awesome. Awesome. Very cool. Well, stay tuned because Peter's going to be back. He's got some more interesting information about GPU pass. We're going to get to that in the next upcoming segment. But first, the news with JT. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the week in review with JT. The Open Source Robotics Foundation has had its 10th anniversary. Hermetic has released a free open source tool for managing access denied events in Amazon's web services. This tool automates the time-consuming process of troubleshooting and correcting your cloud access policy. Chinese company MangoPie has announced a new computer on module that's smaller than an SD card. However, this device packs four ARM Cortex-A53 CPUs, it supports Linux, and it can handle 1080p 60fps video playback through an HDMI output. In other release news, Parrot OS has released version 5. Parrot is a Debian-based Linux distribution focused on security and ethical hacking. It is an alternative to Kali Linux. GNOME 42 has been released and now comes with a native dark mode. Farin OS, the Ubuntu-based distro for users migrating from Windows and Chrome OS, has just released version 2022.03. Debian Linux's Bullseye release, 11.3, has come out with 83 security updates and 92 bug fixes. In other security news, the fallout continues over open source developers inserting malware and other protest code into their software. As a result, Russia's largest bank tells its clients to delay downloading any open source software updates. The Hive ransomware operation has converted their VMware ESXi Linux encryptor to Rust programming language and has added features to make it harder for security researchers to snoop on victims' ransom negotiations. In AI news, Future AI has released Brain Simulator 2, an open-source, biologically-modeled neuron simulator with the added capability of incorporating any desired software and functionality. Researchers from the University of Washington, Google Brain, and Columbia University have open-sourced their WiseFT algorithm for fine-tuning AI models. And finally, the BMW Group 
publishes Sortie, the largest open source data set for super efficient AI applications in production. BMW Group, along with its partners, hope that the release of the world's largest reference data set for artificial intelligence in the field of manufacturing will help accelerate AI's incorporation in the manufacturing. I'd like to take the time to welcome to the program Eric Leitz from Oak Ridge Engineering. Uh, Eric is a was a fan of the show, um, is a client of of Altispeed, and I had an opportunity to do some work for Eric and get to know him and his wife and his family, and uh, we've since developed a friendship. And uh, I'm inviting him on the program this week because we're going to talk about some of the cool things he's done. Engineers think about things differently, and that's certainly true with Eric. He runs this entire business on Linux. Welcome into the program, sir. Well, hi, Noah. Thanks for having me on the program, and I'm still a fan of the program, not was. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's good to know. Uh, so, uh, Eric, I, I want to start by by talking about Oak Ridge Engineering. So, Oak Ridge Engineering is 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 an engineering firm. But what kind of engineer are you, and what kind of things do you engineer? So, I am a civil engineer. So, we do a lot of work specifically with soils, and we specialize in agricultural engineering and solid waste engineering. So, on farms. We do dairy farms, hog farms, um, poultry farms, and we do everything from the building down. So all the soils investigation, um, all the waste storage, waste transfer, site planning. Um, And then on solid waste facilities, we work on landfills. Uh, We work on transfer stations where you dump your garbage and it gets picked up and put in a bigger truck. We work with some incinerators where they actually make electricity and steam off of burning garbage. Um, And then we do some other projects like industrial containment. So we basically, if I have to do an elevator speech, we sum it up, we uh, use basically make containment systems. So why would a farm need a bunch of engineering? I mean, don't you just raise the animals, slaughter them and ship the meat out? I mean, what is there really to engineer? Well, so on, on farms, and most of our work is on dairy farms because we're located in Wisconsin, and um, you have to uh, mean or you have to contain the manure from the animals because there's a lot of um, resources in it. So it's it's a value to farmers. Um, they uh, and used improperly, it can contaminate the environment. There's a lot of nitrogen, a lot of phosphorus, potassium. Um, so you want to contain it. You don't want it to get into the environment, into either the soil or surface waters or groundwaters. But then it also put on the fields in proper agronomic rates can offset commercial fertilizer. So there's a value to it too. So you essentially, it, when you get to a certain size, the farm basically becomes a city. It very well can, yes. When some of our so our, our um, farm clients, some of them are as low as 40 head of, of cows. Some of them, I think our largest client is about 8,000 cows. Um, so when you get to that size, you have water production. Um, Because you're talking almost 100 gallons of water per day per animal. You're talking about semi-traffic with the milk trucks leaving, with employees coming in. You have stormwater concerns off of the roofs. Um, All that rainwater has to go somewhere. Um, You have ventilation concerns because cows do not like warm weather. So they like about 40 to 50 degree weather. So they want to stay cool. And then you have all the feed For the cows, so you have all the crops coming in off the fields for various times of year. And then um, even the the runoff off of that feed, you have to um, collect that because there's nutrient value in that as well um, that you don't want getting out into the environment. So some of these sites are um, pretty large. I mean, we're talking, you know, 20 to 40 acres sometimes for just the, the production area. Talk a little bit about how you use technology uh, to do this, and what are some of the tools that you're using? So we, um, when we first get to a site, we 
start um, surveying. So we have uh, both a total station, which is line of sight um, survey equipment, and then we have GPS survey equipment. And we actually have an open source um, survey uh, head, or actually our survey equipment in general is open source. So we have a third-party data collector um, that still runs Windows CE. So if anyone wants to help me <laughs> migrate that into something not Windows CE, um, I'd be game. Um, but then we, um, so we map the site out, and then when we get back into the office, we use various programs to um, model the, the topography, to um, design in uh, the proposed facilities, look at um, earthwork, because we always try to balance how much soil we take out from an excavation if we're um, digging a manure lagoon um, to, you know, if the barn needs fill or if the site needs fill. Um, so we use um, a couple 3D modeling software um, programs to do that. We have a couple um, stormwater management um, programs that we use to help us calculate and size culvert pipes and retention basins. And so there, there's technology in the field then into design. And then when we go into construction, we're back to the survey equipment and we're helping contractors lay out the building, set grades. Um, you know, we'll put this 3D surface into our, our survey equipment and we can walk around anywhere and tell a contractor that this needs to come down, you know, 14 feet and it needs to be at this slope to get this drainage or, you know, you're close here, but it needs to come up six inches, you know, or ready for gravel. So we're constantly using technology on, well, any of our projects. So when did you actually get in interested in open source and are you using any Linux? So I actually, um, I, I have, I didn't know I um, was into open source until um, I actually started looking at Linux in depth, and then I realized that we're open source already. Um, when I, <clears throat> so I purchased the company about five years ago from my father-in-law, and we um, started not using Microsoft. Um, so I, we didn't use Microsoft Outlook. We used Thunderbird for our email. We used um, Firefox instead of Chrome or Edge. <clears throat> And then um, one day um, I was one of those stories you hear about where someone was doing a presentation with their Windows 10 computer in front of a client and it goes into that magical update where 10 minutes later you're lucky if you have your Windows running again. So I was one of those people presenting to a client when that happened. And we sat down, my wife and I sat down and said, what can we do? Because we, at the time, we had a whole bunch of Windows 7 machines and we did not want to go to Windows 10. Um, so we found, uh, did a Google search and we found this distribution that was Linux, which I had heard of before. And it was uh, Zorin OS and it said it was a Windows you know, equivalent. So we downloaded it. We actually purchased a, a really cheap laptop to try it out on and got it installed. It was amazing because it took about five minutes to install. And it was like, this this could probably work. And we just started looking at it and, you know, what can we do? Um, you know, LibreOffice we found to be, you know, very compatible with, with um, the Microsoft Office suite. And so, you know, we just progressed down the list of what can we get into open source based on Linux. And that was about three years ago. Talk to me a little bit about the factors that led to move your engineering firm to Linux. It's one thing to say, I downloaded this thing and I, I ran it on my laptop so I could present to clients. That's one thing, right? It's entirely something else to take all of your staff laptops, <laughs> install them with Linux Mint, hand them all back and say, good luck, guys. Uh, talk a little bit about what led to that decision uh, in, in your engineering firm? Well, that's, uh, that took a long time for us to come up with, uh, a, is this even possible? Um, 
And so what we did was we looked at our um, our workflow. We looked at where we can use Linux. Um, basically, we, we liked Linux because, and I hear this in a lot of the podcasts that, you know, Linux has issues because there's no unified, you know, distribution or there's no unified um, uh Windows Manager or desktop environment, and I—that's I, actually one of the things that led us to Linux and what we like about Linux because it's decentralized. And you were talking about that earlier in the show about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency being de- decentralized. It gives a greater opportunity for um, innovation, and it gives less incentive for the large corporations or you know, large entities to make bad decisions and everybody is stuck with those bad decisions. Um, So that was one particular reason why we liked Linux. The other thing is we really liked the security implications because we were having just, you know, a lot of issues with um, malware, with viruses, the virus, um, you know, checking, uh, scanning programs would just bog down the Windows systems. And then we were having Windows reliability issues. We, Like I said, we were running Windows 7 at the time. It was getting to end of life. Um, weren't real thrilled about going to Windows 10. And um, and we had lots of, you know, blue screens of deaths and having to um, redo our, our uh, Windows machines and being down for, you know, half a day. And we are a small operation. We still are. And having that downtime, we can't just, you know, have a spare computer sitting ready to go for someone. Um, so that's, that's really what led us into Linux. And, and then what we did is we actually came up with a, basically a rollout plan to the staff and said, you know, this is what we're doing. I I made a presentation, um, you know, I practiced it. I said to the staff, you know, this is why we're, this is what Linux is. This is why we're switching. And these are the reasons. This is what will affect your programs. And I made a, a, you know, basically a, a matrix that said, these are the programs that we, you know, use now for email. You know, we use Thunderbird. In Linux, you're going to use Thunderbird, you know, Firefox, Firefox. You know, the Microsoft Office suite went to LibreOffice. And then our, um, we did find out that there were certain programs that were not going to work on Linux at all, um, particularly um, AutoCAD, which we use almost every day, um, and Carlson, which is our 3D uh, modeling program, and our um, CRM program for our time and uh, client management those were Windows only, so we decided we were going to run all of those virtually with a virtual machine um, running either Windows 7 or Windows 10. And so, honestly, what the staff were working on a lot are those CAD programs, so that did not even change one bit. So it still took a little bit of convincing, though. Do you think that um, Do you think that your staff and you kind of think differently than say the average business person and and if you think that's true like how did that impact the way that um, you make your decisions and how how it impacted the way that your staff um, adjusted to the change so you know we do look at technology a little bit different um, being in the engineering field we're, we're surrounded with it in you know even how we approach the problems that we're trying to solve through our designs or through our projects. So, um, you know, even for all of the staff are very technologically able um, with, you know, operating the computer. Um, You know, you don't get a lot of questions of, you know, I can't, you know, get this program to work. They tend to be able to work through that. Um, So that aspect was actually one of the easier things for the staff to adjust to, if that makes sense. Did you have any kind of difficulties that while you were going through? We definitely had some issues, um, definitely some paper cuts. Um, we're still not completely happy with the way 
Um, some of our, our virtual um, instances work, um, which is one of the things that we ask no one is team to, to help us with. Um, there are some um, there are some compatibility issues with um, LibreOffice um, with some of the legacy um, government spreadsheets that we use um, and, and government agency spreadsheets, I should say, um, that have macros in Excel and and those macros because they're written in Visual Basic don't translate at all. So we still have to, you know, run some specific instances of of Windows. We have some um, air gapped Windows machines that we have to transfer files on a USB drive to, you know, to make it work to run that particular spreadsheet. So it's definitely not perfect, but we have found a way to make it work. How do you, you know, think we, that? Like, how did you receive that? Sorry, no, I just wanted to no, kind of chase that just a little bit. Um, I'm I'm kind of curious. So for, for technical people, sometimes they don't mind paper cuts and sometimes it's just a real big irritant and like uh, they walk away wondering what the point is or it's an easy an easy thing to go back because honestly at the end of the day you're not a you're not a technology company you're a guy trying to achieve a specific task so like can you tell me just a little bit about how you felt that uh those paper cuts were were perceived by your by your staff some of them were not received real well and you know to a point why are we even doing this why can't we all go back to windows like everybody else and and i still get that from time to time um but we basically as as ownerships you know stuck our our foot in the sand and said we are doing this because of these reasons you know these values so then once we made that decision you know it's on um basically my wife and I as the owners to come up with a solution. Um, so, you know, there were some times where it's like, well, it's as simple as let's just get, you know, something else installed on our, our virtual machine, you know, running windows. Um, or, you know, to a point we were talking to um, the developers of, of crossover, which is the commercial version of wine. And we were very, very close to, um, getting one of our our modeling software to run, you know, through Wine, and you know, there's just a couple of things with the actual software that the way it was set up, just all of a sudden it was a roadblock that we couldn't pass. But the one thing that we found working through these paper clips or uh, paper cuts is that in the open source community, um, people are, are more than willing to work with you. At least that's been our experience in trying to get things solved. And that that was probably one of the more eye-opening things of our, our switch to Linux was just that open source mentality. And to a point now, we actually put it in our, our proposals when we're sending out, you know, uh, large uh proposals for new projects is that we embrace open source and we use it, you know, as much as we can. I actually start writing that right in the proposal so people know that that's our mindset. Talk a little bit about your desire to have everything self-hosted. When we, to, to be honest with you, Eric, to a large degree, you're kind of a perfect client for us, right? Like there's a there's a handful of IT companies in the world that specialize in this, and it was your desire. And when you said, I want everything hosted, my own little data center in my facility, which is fantastically designed, by the way. I'd like to get into that in another episode. But uh, the first week, we didn't have, we didn't have fiber in. So we're waiting for the ISP guys to get fiber in, but all of the infrastructure just worked inside of your facility. What led to your decision, and 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 what has been your uh, your response to having all of the stuff that you rely on in your own uh, little data center? Well, it goes back to that idea of decentralization, and uh, and then by an offshoot of that, our um, clientele. Oftentimes, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, don't have a cell phone signal, can't get data service. You know, we need our stuff to work on our own, you know, and on our own terms. And so that kind of goes back to our office as well, that, you know, if the Internet goes down, 
I don't want my, you know, program that I make my, um, you know, my living off of to have to be able to reach out to the internet to, you know, get approval to run on my computer. Um, you know, I want that to be all within my control. And so that, that kind of drove us to have it all, you know, as much as we can in-house. We don't have everything. We're working on getting more and more self-hosted. Um, you know, but the ability to <clears throat> operate, you know, say the the Internet goes down, say the power goes down for an extended period of time, all I have to do is bring a generator to the office and plug it in, and we're back up and running like, you know, nothing happened. And that was kind of our goal with our new office was to be able to control as much as we can within reason. So we've kind of gotten everybody up to speed. So here's where we're at now. You've, as you alluded to earlier, you asked my team and I to look into some of the problems that you're having. And I want to bring Peter Dennert in. Um, he's been working on uh, the GPU pass through. So what the goal here is to get your uh, your computers. You have ThinkPads, and you want the dedicated graphics card to pass directly through to the VM so that you can run these Windows-specific programs when you need and then bounce back to Linux when it when it's no longer in use. And over time, you know, you've got some plans to migrate over to Linux-based um, CAD software, I think BricsCADs, what you're looking at. But uh, for the for the time being, we still have to have some of this other software working. Now, I, I want to bring Peter in. Tell me a little bit about why this was a challenge. Why it, you know why is this a difficult thing to do, and how did you solve it? Well, uh, the research we were doing uh, ended up getting the the machine that we we're going to use uh, ended up only having uh, one GPU, which normally when you set up GPU pass through, you're wanting to leave one GPU for the host and then pass a second GPU through to the guest. Um, so going into it, I, I didn't even know whether you could. Um, but I uh, did some research uh, looking at YouTube and Googling things um, and uh, found there's a guy who uh, he had written some scripts that you can plug into Libvirt that essentially run uh, before, uh, you know, before it launches the VM and then after the VM shuts down and basically it, you know, uh, turns off your display manager, disconnects the GPU from the, the console and clears its uh, frame, uh, frame buffer and basically frees it up so that then you can start the VM and the VM can take full control over the GPU um, and so it's kind of cool because you start up the VM using, you know, Vert Manager, and then the screen goes black, and then Windows boots up. And then when you're done, you can shut it down, and it just goes back to Linux. And it works. Yeah. It's, just, it's it's cool to what? see that do being able to do it with just a single GPU, especially today where buying a GPU is hard and expensive. Yeah. <laughs> um, talk a little bit about what the challenges are going to be going forward. So obviously, so we've got this working in a test environment. We've got it working in the sandbox. The next step, obviously, is to get it working on Eric's laptop. So how is that going to work, and what are the challenges we're up against? Uh, the difficult part on laptops is that different laptops are wired differently. So, um, like some of the lower end laptops will, um, essentially, like in a normal desktop computer, the information flows from the CPU to the graphics card to your displays. But in some of the cheaper laptops, the it where you have like an integrated graphics and then your dedicated graphics card. The information flows from the CPU to like the dedicated GPU and then back to the integrated graphics card and then to the displays. And so if you want to try to separate those two and pass one through to the VM and use one to power you know, your laptop, you can't do that. So some laptops, this will be possible. Other laptops, just the way the chip is soldered, it's just functionally not not capable of doing it. 
Right. It, it, it may still be possible to do it in a similar way to like a single GPU pass through. Mm. Although you'd have to like pass like both GPUs through. It would uh, be a little more difficult. So, you know, we're going to ask Eric to ship us down a laptop and, and Eric has a, hot, uh, has a cold shelf spare. So we're going to do our testing on that and, and we'll see if we're able to get this to work on, on the ThinkPads. I guess, Eric, what are the ThinkPads that you're using just quickly? And then I'm going to leave it with this. What are your future plans for Oak Ridge Engineering from a tech perspective? Where are you looking to go next? Well, currently we have a whole bunch of, uh, like you said, ThinkPad um, X1 uh, extremes, and I think they're Gen 2s, um, and they've been wonderful computers. They've been rock solid so far. And um, so going in the future, um, you know, again, with the self-hosted, we want to be able to self-host as much as we can. We also, um, you know, in that same mindset, uh, fundamentally, we do not like software as a service. Um, so we want to be able to own our own software. If we purchase it, we want it, to, you know, be able to function when we want it to function. Um, so we're looking for more um, software resources that have that option, which is becoming less and less all the time. Um, <clears throat> but then with that, um, we you know want to um, migrate. The goal would be to run on Linux exclusively. So trying to get uh, some of our, our, you know, Windows virtualized um, environments as far as our CAD, our, our 3D modeling software, um, even our, our time and client or uh, resource management tools. And those we, we want to eventually migrate to Linux so we can basically, you know, run Linux for everything is, is ultimately our goal. Eric Leitz, he is the president of Oak Ridge Engineering in Mondovi, Wisconsin, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to share your truly unique story and what you guys are doing in Mondovi. It has been a professional pleasure to be able to work with you and serve you, and it has been super fun on the geeky, nerdy side, and I'm so thankful that not all of our clients are willing to come on and, 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 and talk about this stuff, but it has value to the community because there's somebody else out there that's thinking, can I do that in my business? Can, can that work? And it's good to hear from people that are making that work. Um, so I just I appreciate the time, man. Well, I appreciate you asking me to be on the show and and for for helping us and being willing to uh, maybe uh, listen to our crazy ideas. And so far, you've come up with solutions. So I truly appreciate that. And with your team, with Peter and the other guys that have helped us over the the well over years. So we really appreciate it as well. The music in our ears means we're out of time. Thanks for listening. You can learn more at podcast.asknoahshow.com. That's where we publish all of the show notes, all of the articles and references that we talk about, everything you heard in the show. Hey, it's all published there, podcast.asknoahshow. You want to follow us live? Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens, the show at Ask Noah Show. We record the show every Tuesday, so we'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next week.